1: Hello, I am Roxanne Gay, the co-host with Tressie McMillan-Cottom of Here to Slay, exclusively on Luminary. We have an excerpt from this week's show that we would like to share with you. Indeed, we recently spoke with the amazing historian
0: Carol Anderson about white rage and white fear and how it's all connected to our addiction to the Second Amendment. If you want to hear more, you can listen to the whole thing by going to luminary.link slash slay. The fear that that black power, that access to black power will mean
2: the diminution of of white people. Mm -hmm. That's what's driving this. And Mm -hmm. it is not based on anything but fear and it's fear driven. Mm -hmm. It is stoked by horrific stereotypes that we see then playing out of like the killing of George Floyd, where Mm -hmm. a man is prone. He's got officers on his body one has his knee on his neck um Mm -hmm. and they're still describing we're fearful of him he is so
0: big he is so strong he can take us out with your knee on
1: his neck Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: yes you know you talk a lot about white rage in your work carol but i think we also need to talk about white fear Mm -hmm. and you know not just fear of the black body, but fear of losing white power. You know, I think a lot of what we're seeing, because in the past few weeks, I have seen a lot of nonsense on social media from conservative pundits talking about how we need to reduce voting rights mm, Mm -hmm. to taxpayers only to Mm -hmm. people who pass a civics test as if these people could pass a civics test (laughs) and so where does white fear fit into this as a fuel for the rage
2: white fear is central to it. White fear is one of the things that I talk about in White Rage is that the ways that politicians are able to stoke it is to create this zero sum game that the Mm -hmm. only way that black folks can get will be at white folks expense. And so it is Mm -hmm. all about what white folks will lose when black people gain access to their civil rights. And Mm -hmm. so when black people vote, then clearly that must mean that white people lose lose everything that they hold dear. I mean, that's the narrative that continues to be deployed. It was deployed by Andrew Johnson after the Civil Hmm. War in 1866 when they were debating the Civil Rights Act of 1866. And Johnson did a zero-sum game that what this is going to do is it's going to take rights away from Mm -hmm. our
1: people. Mm
0: -hmm. Our people, right? Yeah, what I find so interesting about that, and by interesting, of course, I mean, I don't know, perverse. (laughs) It's just, you know, you know I'm conditioned to it, but it, I don't want us to lose how perverse that is. Yes. You know, this has been some like some of my research with some of my colleagues, but just more broadly, this idea that it doesn't have to be actual loss that white people are afraid of,
1: mm-hmm.
0: that it is enough for white people to perceive a loss, right? You, yeah. you, nothing about your life has to actually it change. Right. <laughs> it's the perception right? of right. loss. And not yeah. only the
1: perception of your loss, but like your little white bro over there. Yes. Yes. It's it's like any white person losing anything is all the world is coming to an end. Yeah. Right.
2: Right. And so I remember uh, when I taught at the University of Missouri and they Mm. brought in Ward Connerly. Uh, who was the champion, the black champion behind Prop 209 in California, which ended affirmative action in California. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. at the end of his talk, a young white man stood up and he talked about, yes, they're taking our slots Mm -hmm. so that college was seen as a white bastion. And that Mm -hmm. what affirmative action did was it took admission slots away from white people. Now, we didn't ask that question when we started adding slots in prison, using public funds for black people. Um, mm-hmm. And it was mm-hmm. that transference of public dollars from higher education to, to the prisons, prisons yeah. that in fact made the, the expansion of higher education very difficult. So we mm-hmm. don't we don't get that language of loss when it comes to overpopulating our prison system. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. this perception of fear, this perception of this is ours, it is the way that black people moving into a predominantly white neighborhood is seen yeah. as a loss to the quality right. of that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. It is the way that when black people get jobs uh, mm-hmm. that they have worked really hard for, mm-hmm. there's always that uh, it, um, George Lipsitz talks about in The Possessive Investment in whiteness, that chapter, Mm -hmm. Swing Low, Sweet Cadillac. How did you get that? (laughs) You know, how (laughs) did you get that? Uh, (laughs) Becomes that that underlying question there because it's seen as it could not be because of merit.
0: It could not be because of hard work. It had to be because you took it from us. Right, right. Yeah, whiteness never fails. Whiteness never fails. Things fail white people but white people themselves can never fail, right? Systems fail them, you know, habits fail them, norms fail them, other people, but yes, they themselves never fail. And that is fundamentally the American story. We've been talking a lot on the show the last couple of weeks about the American dream and myths of meritocracy. Mm -hmm. Um, And part of what I think of your work is doing, especially the trilogy here of your recent books, is rewriting the narrative of merit, Mm -hmm. Right, because there is really no such thing. Merit is for other people, merit is not really for white people. Yeah. Right. In White Rage, I'm laying out how African
2: Americans getting access to their civil rights creates Mm -hmm. this massive policy backlash to undermine access to those rights. And so one of the pieces that I talk about is after the Brown decision, having massive resistance Mm -hmm. that will shut down the entire public school system, then provide taxpayer funded dollars, which means
0: black people are paying taxes for fundamentally private schools for white people. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yes.
2: Mm -hmm. And and it's the way that after Sputnik, how the feds were pouring in hundreds of millions of dollars to create the brain power to fight the Cold War, but had in there that those universities could defy defy the Brown decision and have whites only admissions policies um, while they're
0: getting millions. Federal dollars. dollars. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because what's supposed to happen is when a federal case like Brown happens, the government agencies are most beholden to uh, executing those rulings. So basically in federal employment, if uh, something like the American with Disabilities Act, it may rule all employment, but federal government absolutely has to Follow it because it's federal law. And so you're saying Brown is this federal case. Right. So you're not supposed to be able to get federal dollars if you flout federal cases or rulings yeah. or findings or whatever. And they said, well, no, th- we'll carve out this exception. Exactly. Exactly. You can refute Brown, but still get federal money. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so you think about this when we talk about merit. What happens when you're funneling
2: hundreds of millions of dollars into all white private universities and private mm-hmm. education that that is excluding black people? And then you say, well, we got here on our merit when what mm-hmm. you got here On was public policy that was racially discriminatory and exclusive. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what we have to understand.
1: Yeah, you know, it's very interesting to see when public policy is good and when public policy is bad. Mm -hmm. Public policy is good when it is exclusionary, especially to people of color, women to a lesser extent. Uh, But it's bad when it's inclusive and when Mm -hmm. it encourages broadening. And so I think that's interesting that we're starting to see now some people interested in more public policy toward gun ownership, which historically has been like the one thing that conservatives are like. Everyone should be able to do it. We should have no restrictions on it. Don't you tread on me by doing a background check to make sure I'm not unwell mentally. And now that black people are starting to own guns, and I myself recently became a gun owner, uh, now there's some panic because if mm-hmm. we're armed too, they can't kill us as easily. Uh, it's interesting to see what that's happening. And so I know that in your upcoming book, The Second Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America, that's coming out in June, uh, you start to talk about this, that Black people are armed and dangerous and white people get to exercise their Second Amendment rights. Where is this all going? Uh, I think where it's it's all going, let me talk about where it came from. (laughs) Mm, mm
2: -hmm. It, It came from the roots are in Slavery. Uh, mm-hmm. the roots are the fear of black people. Isn't it always? <laughs> yes. right? mm-hmm. like
1: the, every goddamn thing is rooted in slavery. Right. Mm-hmm.
2: You know, and so it is the fear of black people fighting for their freedom, refusing to be subjugated. And so you see a slew of laws about how the enslaved cannot have access to guns or any kinds of weapons. You also see this in terms of free blacks, the constrictions on free blacks having access to guns because they're seen as a, quote unquote, dangerous population. And that fear of black people, that fear of blackness, that anti-blackness is what is driving the Second Amendment. It was the fear that the federal government would control the militia and therefore not be Mm -hmm. as amenable to sending forces into the South to help Quell an uprising by the enslaved. And so that that embedding the militia into the Second Amendment, putting that Mm -hmm. you have sitting there then in the Bill of Rights an amendment that is about curtailing the rights of black people. That was the role of the militia and the Second Amendment. And then tracking that through, part of what we see is that every kind of interpretation of the Second Amendment in terms of the right to bear arms, the right to a well-regulated militia, and the attendant right to self-defense, when African Americans try to access those rights, disproportionately they are taken out, Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and I'm tracking this over time, is that what we're seeing is that when black people try to defend themselves, like in Elaine, Arkansas, in 1919, they called in the U.S. Army with machine guns to take out black folks. Over The estimate is almost over 800 killed. In Elaine, Arkansas, because they tried to defend themselves to organize a union to stop the wage theft that was mm-hmm. happening. When you have the Black Panthers who were policing the police in the mm-hmm. mid
0: 1960s, you had a combination of the NRA working I was just about to say this is where the nra 's roots of it becoming a political action yeah. uh, committee basically for the oppression of uh, non white minority people starts yeah it is a direct response to the gun ownership of black panthers yes yes I mean they helped draft the mulford act in
2: California that uh, said you cannot open carry because mm-hmm. a key element strategy in the panthers Activism in policing
0: the police was to open carry because Mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. Oakland police had been absolutely brutal in its treatment. I mean, yeah. Yeah, we talk about Southern violence and really, which we should, but the Oakland Police Department was for all intents and purposes like an old school slave trade patrol. They were apparently just some of the worst. Oh, absolutely brutal.
1: Yeah.
2: And it was in that brutality that fed into the need for the Black Panthers, the Black Panther Party for self-defense. That scared the bejeebers. And that's the Mm -hmm. scholar term scared (laughs) scared the bejeebers out of the
0: political class in Mm -hmm. california and so you have reagan uh the republican governor i was about to say that's the roots of reagan's financing um his his willingness to embrace he was part and parcel of the nra becoming what we know the nra to be today right I mean, yeah, he was like, I am eager to sign
2: this the moment it hits my desk. Uh So Mm -hmm. that stripping the Black Panther Party of its visible power, it wasn't Mm -hmm. illegal until the Black Panthers did it. Right. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's what we have to understand.
1: You can listen to our full interview with Carol Anderson and many other conversations we've been having on Here to slay by going to luminary.link/slay, not .com, luminary.link/slay.
0: I'm Katya Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico.